the crime drama TV series Breaking Bad, the movie Escape from Alcatraz, starring Clint Eastwood, and an iconic Seinfeld episode. Buckle on up, as we're about to hear from the actor who appeared in all three. Welcome to the Motivation Show podcast, where we interview remarkable world-class experts that help bring out the greatness within you. Top book authors, super successful business people, and outstanding special guests that will motivate and inspire you with their incredible, uplifting stories and life-changing tips and strategies. Our goal is your success. If you desire more out of life, you've dialed into the right show. So fasten your seatbelts, friends, and let's get ready for some high-octane motivation. Now, your host, the mayor of motivation, Eli Marcus. Our guest on The Motivation Show today has appeared in 184 movies and TV shows. That is insane. He has done it all in Hollywood, including appearing in Escape from Alcatraz with Clint Eastwood, to appearing in Breaking Bad. And then there was that iconic Seinfeld episode in which he was the unforgettable classic main character. So I want to welcome to the Motivation Show, Larry Hankin. How you doing, Eli? Larry, life couldn't be any better. And you know cool. why? Well, for me, it could be a lot better, but really? let's not get into that. <laughs> I haven't been out of the house and not wearing a mask in, in <laughs> it seems like years. I live in a city where everybody's wearing a mask. It looks like I'm living in a city of bank robbers. It's amazing. <laughs> so, Larry, you've been hunkered down there since COVID, right? You haven't left your yeah. apartment too much, but you know something? That can be turned into a positive. And I have a feeling a guy like you turned it into a positive. Tell me how you turned that into a positive. I wrote two screenplays. Well, oh, there you go. <laughs> Most people, For how long year. does it take to write one screenplay? A year, right? It takes about a, a year. I did All it in right. six months, two, two, two shifts. But wow, man, my my fanny is hurting. And take us through your early days, because obviously you got a great sense of humor. And your early days was as a comedian. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, well, um, my comedian days, uh, I went to college and I graduated as an industrial designer. I took physics, I took math, I took all that stuff because I wanted to be a good son. It's a perfect segue into, into being a comic. There you go. <laughs> well, uh, it was the rebellion, but it, uh, I, I went all the way through college, five years. It was a five-year course, uh, but I got a degree in industrial design. And then after that, I said, okay, I did my stuff for my parents. I'm running away from home now <laughs> at what, 18 or 19? I don't know. Uh, that took me a while, but then I just, I didn't even go to my graduation. I mean, I just wanted to get out of there, man. I mean, learning is very hard and difficult. And if you're not learning stuff you like, forget it. So, which I did. So then I became, oh yeah. So Carl Gottlieb, you know who Carl Gottlieb is? Is anybody familiar with? Carl Gottlieb wrote Jaws. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. So in Syracuse University, uh, I ran into Carl and we just hit it off just immediately became fast friends. So when he we we graduated at the same time, he said he was going to go to Greenwich Village and become a writer. I mean, he wanted to be a writer from the get go. So he had been writing in college. The way I hooked up with him was he was a, had an opinion piece in the Daily Orange, the Syracuse University newspaper, and he would attack everything 
I mean, he was a satirist, but even he was a vicious satirist. So some of the stuff wasn't even funny. It was just an attack. That That's his forte. He is a really smart, funny guy. So he was doing that, but he uh, garnered all the uh, people he attacked, the teachers, the marching band, the football team. I mean, you know, the holy grail of colleges, <laughs> the professors. And uh, they wanted to fight him and pass him down and send him to the uh, kidnap. Here's how bad he was or how great he was to Tell me. Tell me how bad, how he, bad was. he was. Yep. Tell me, he was hung in effigy from a lamppost in the uh, square and burned in effigy. Oh my goodness, he was bad. That's pretty, <laughs> pretty bad. Yeah. Cool to me. So uh, when we graduated, uh, he said he's going to go to Grand Village and become a writer. And I said, uh, he said, why don't you come with me? We'll be roommates. And I didn't want to be uh, an industrial designer. I mean, I got a, I was a you know A student, you know, stuff like that. I got thrown out twice, and still got A's. But I, I just was a. I, I was up to here with pleasing my parents, you know. There's, there's not a lot of comedy in industrial design, Larry. So I'm glad, I'm no, glad you took a little, a little shift into another direction. Um, yeah, so uh, so we went to Greenwich Village. I, I just eschewed industrial design. Yeah. I was offered, uh, you know, like hundreds of thousands of dollars to work in uh, General Motors designing cars. I mean, I was sought after. Mm -hmm. But I, I just didn't want to do it. So we, I went to Greenwich Village and just became his roommate. And I uh, swabbed duckboards behind the bar after closing time, after last call, from 2 in the morning, 2.30, uh, until about uh, 6, when the uh, cooking crew came in, the chef came in, it was a bar and grill. So he would let me out. And the only way I could eat, I wasn't even making enough to cover the rent. Carl was covering it for me. I made a couple of bucks, you know, swabbing in uh, cleaning up, uh, if I see, I don't want to see another peanut shell as long as I live. Um, <laughs> not on, not on the floor. I'm <laughs> <laughs> sweeping up. And it, but but um, so what I would be doing is uh, in, I would clean up the bar and about five o'clock, 5.30 a.m., I would go into the, uh, where they kept the food mainly the, uh, well, rashers of bacon and canned foods. And I would always walk in to work with a raincoat on, uh, a la uh, Harpo Marx, the spoons and stuff. Yeah, and yeah. He had. Well, that's where I got the idea. Like, well, the, the horn that he had Marx hidden right in on. there, right? <laughs> beep, beep. Yeah. yeah, well, I didn't have a, a horn. I didn't want to tell anybody, but, but yeah. And so I would put this stuff in there and I would always wait by the door when the, the, the chef had to let me out, they locked the door from the outside. So, so I couldn't get out. I don't know. So people couldn't get in. I don't know why they did that, but I couldn't get out until the chef let me out. And so I guess I couldn't let people in or something like that. So uh, the chef would open the door. And as he opened the door, because I didn't want him to see me with the, the raincoat stuffed. You know, I was afraid he would see some bulge or something. I would stuff the bacon in, in the back so it would be flat in my belt. And I would just whoosh, just go out the door. How you doing, Sai? You know, and <laughs> out. So, but I had to stop that after two yeah. weeks because uh, I was afraid they started to count the food and they would, they would see that it was missing. <laughs> so I quit after two weeks. I had a store of food for a couple of days. That was all. And uh, so I had to get a job. 
And the only job available was, uh, it wasn't a job, but I used to hang out in coffee shops in Greenwich Village until I had to go to work at 2 a.m. So the only thing free was uh, open mic nights. So oh, open yeah. mic nights were Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and then the weekend was- Do you remember the venues uh, that you were- Oh yeah, in? the Cock and Bull uh, was the big one. Mm -hmm. And then uh, there was uh, the Night Owl, which is where Dylan was. Yeah, uh, That was only music. And then the weird thing was everybody who you know and grew up with, I'm talking about you, Eli, uh, who we grew up uh, and, and sang the songs and were- Everybody was of, played the village, was there. right? Everybody, was there while yeah, right. I was there. Yeah, John Baez, uh, Dylan, all of them. Yeah. Dylan, yeah. Uh, Frank Zappa, I used to on, on my, uh, sometimes about 10 o'clock uh, before going to the bar or going to an open mic night. Or if there wasn't one, I would just, uh, right across the street from Cock and Bull was a theater that was closed. You know, it wasn't used, it was vacant. Uh, so Frank Zappa uh, would rent it to rehearse there at night with, with the Mothers of Invention. And he would just leave the door open. Anybody walking on the street could come in and listen to the rehearsals. And he would just do ragas for, for most of the rehearsal. He would just play for like 20 minutes, just as long. Uh, but I would sit there and listen, you know, and I didn't know eh, Frank Zappa, who the hell knows Frank Zappa? And, oh, wow, that guy. Yeah. Or Dylan, you know, I would walk out on Dylan, you know, and then, you know, later I became, you know, holy cow, this guy's a genius. But I used to, you know, because in the beginning he wasn't, well, I didn't think he was a great singer. Everybody else did because of the words, but I wasn't listening. You know, it's amazing, Larry, at the time, you know, some of these people, they're just people, you know, from the present yeah. time. In retrospect, you look back and like, oh my God, what an iconic yeah. era. I mean, there'll never be a time like that in Greenwich Village again or any place. No, I was like, had, I, yeah. was, I was thinking like it was like Montmartre during the uh, Impressionist period where you had Van Gogh and Picasso and all those people hanging out in the coffee houses. And they, they would sign their check with their names and someday this will be famous, you'll, you know, you'll be rich. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking that during the time, I said, this must have been like what Momot was, you know, for the Impressionists. But yeah, everybody was there. I mean, uh, Shepard, Sam Shepard was there, and, and Dylan, and uh, the Mamas and the Papas were there oh, uh, separately. Wow. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, Cass was there. Mama Cass. Mama, Mama Cass was there. Yeah. She was singing. Yeah, she was checking coats and oh uh, the God. upstairs at the downstairs. Oh I would come God. in and she would check my coat. Wow. We would sit, sit there and talk until I went on. Cause we, we had the same kind of- And it was probably on a Monday, 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 <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so they were right. Who knew that we were all there together? I mean, you just named them and they were there, you know? So yeah. it was a, an amazing time, but you know, you just trying to make a living, you know? doing Monday yeah. nights, but Monday night saved me because uh, the great thing about Monday night audiences, they're different from all other audiences. They know it's a Monday night and it's free and everything is cheaper then and nobody's getting paid. So, you know, they, they pass the hats. All right, here's 50 cents a dollar. But they would sit because you only had a time. You only had three to five minutes in those days. I think now you have 10 minutes maybe. We had five minutes, you get on the stage. So they knew that even this guy, if this guy or girl stunk, a singer, a folk singer, a comedian, it's only five minutes, they'll be on and maybe the next one will be really great. So they wouldn't boo or anything. They would just sit there with their, you know, half price coffee, just, you know, 
like that. And then- Stone you, face. <laughs> well, no, no, there, there was no judgment. That yeah. was the key. Oh, yeah, yeah. So in other words, they allowed me the grace of being there the, until I yeah. got better. Yes. Because I was a five minutes day, you know, blah, blah. And once I started, now I, I was really awful. I have recordings of me doing that stuff. There was no laughter in what I was doing. It was just silliness. But they didn't or, tear you apart. They let you do what you no, had to do. No, they just sat there Wonderful. and they, you know, until, until the next guy yeah. came on. Yeah. But within six months, because of their graciousness, mm -hmm. I was opening for Woody Allen and Miles oh, Davis. Wow. So my learning curve was very steep. Wow, that's Because I, I was a funny guy in high school. I've always been a funny guy. It's just being funny guy for an audience who is sitting there wanting to, you know, and being on stage and it's formal, you know, it's real. That, that takes a little learning, you know. Larry, I, I got to ask you, because you said something that was very profound. You, you said that you were giving up hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially yeah. in your other field. And here you are working for Bupkis on a stage, you know, honing yeah. your craft. Yeah. Did you for a minute regret or think that maybe never. you made the wrong decision? I never once no. I left and I said, I'm going to Greenwich Village with Don, uh, with, with Carl Gottlieb. I never thought about industrial design until somebody would bring it up years later. So you were willing I, to, you were willing to give up a ton of money to yeah. go after. I still am. You're, I still do. Gotcha. It's that's a not, great lesson. Thing. That's an incredible lesson because so well, many people chase the money. it frees you up, man. Now, there's a price to pay for that. You know, if if I, you know, this play, I, I support myself in this apartment here by my work in show business, which I love, you know, being a funny person and acting and stuff like that. But if that goes away, you know, because I'm getting older and my hair is gray and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you, you get, look distinguished, Larry. Well, but, but thank you very much. But but that has nothing to do with my my money. So if the money runs out, uh, I will have to do something else or scramble or or starve. Or I lived in my car for a year because I wanted to see what what homeless people did. I wanted to write about homeless people. And so I just eschewed my my salary to live in a car for a year to see what, what that was like. And I, I lived off a, a little of my savings, but no, I mean, money is not a mo motivator for me. And I, 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 other things are that pay the rent. Look, it's very important to pay the rent. I'm not saying, you know, fuck all. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, do I, and I'm not even saying you, I'm saying me. I only do what I want to do. Mm, that's, good. that's it. That's the rule for me. I don't know if it'll work for anybody else. It works for me because when I was sitting in my car, living a, a, alone, living in my car, when, I, when, when, when it was raining outside and I was hungry, you know, and the roof is leaking or, I, or this window was broken and the, so the wind is coming in, uh, I have no recourses, oh, this, or why didn't I do that? No, man, you say, yeah, but, but, there's rewards for me doing this. Larry, if Steven Spielberg or George Lucas came up to you with a, a great role, but it didn't resonate with you, but it paid a fortune, do you take the role? Um, there's a proviso there. That, that's uh, you, you don't know what you just asked me, so I'm going to tell you what you just asked me. I'm dyslexic, okay? Now, I don't know if you know what dyslexic is, but it affects my thinking. And mainly in me, because dyslexia affects different people different ways, it affects my deep memory. 
So it's very, very, very hard for me to memorize lines. So I can memorize a page. I can memorize two pages. But if it's a monologue on one page, there's in my contract, it says you have to send me the script as soon as possible. I get it. I'm the first one to get the script. So I have lead time to memorize. So if Francis Ford Coppola comes up to me and says, I'm going to give you $100,000 to do this part. My first question is, how big is the role? That's my first question. If he says, you got a lot of speeches in it, I have to figure, okay, $100,000, $100,000 to memorize a lead role. That would be like a lead role or a co-star role in a Coppola movie. Um, I would ha have to figure out, I would read the script, figure out how long it would take me to memorize the entire script or, you know, for, for each day and blah, 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 the lead time I would need. And then I would say yes or no. And if I couldn't figure out the lead time, like it would take me, you know, Mr. Coppola, how long do I have to take by the time I get the first script to the time you're going to shoot me? Uh, two months. I don't think I could do that. I'm sorry, I have to turn it down. Or you give me enough money and I can get a coach maybe, and maybe I could do it in two months and I accept it. So my dyslexia is the thing that determines whether I take a role or not. Oh, great, great answer. I can, yeah. And so if I, can, if I can memorize it in time, if they give me the lead time, or enough money to pay a coach to help me, mm. I'll take it. And if not, yeah. I don't. And I've done that many, many times in my gotcha. life. Gotcha. So it's just dyslexia, not your pockets, that will make that determination. And my desire, my passion. And, and your desire. So you mentioned uh, a pretty iconic uh, uh, person there, Woody Allen, that you uh, opened for him. Tell me a little bit about maybe what you would have uh, picked up or, or learned from uh being an opening act I, for I some of those people. You know, uh, because of my dyslexia as a child, see, I've had it, I was born with it. So mm -hmm. I've had it all my life. And, but when I was born, when I was born, there was no such thing as dyslexia. Uh, there's no such thing as OCD. There was no such thing as a lot of mental, uh, you know, uh, challenges. So I didn't learn I had dyslexia th that it was oh this is what this is and this is what I have and it's called this and this is what it does until I was in my late 20s early 30s and even when I found out oh I have dyslexia that's why I this happens to me uh it wasn't until a couple of more years before I, I learned what what my options were or how I could get around it or deal with it or cope with it uh and and learn that so late in life that I started to realize what my challenges re really were. By then, I kind of was solidified in, in my life choices. I mean, when you're 36, there's not much you can change about your life. But I worked at it really hard uh, because, I mean, I saw that I was being held back now by this challenge that my other contemporaries were moving ahead a lot faster and I wasn't keeping up. Did it give you any advantages you feel dyslexia? Yeah, creatively. I mean, I'm one of, I, <laughs> I think I'm one of the funniest guys around. And a lot of other people would agree with you, particularly on some of these shows that we're going to get into in a minute. So, so, but I, I also know that dyslexia affects mainly the left brain, which is kind of the artistic side. Dyslexia features in everything I, I do.
even my girlfriends, you know, I mean, how I relate, not, not my girlfriends, but people, how, how I relate to people. I'm extremely shy because I make a lot of mistakes. I misinterpret. You're shy? Oh, I'm terribly. A, a, a girlfriend you? once told me, <laughs> yeah, a girlfriend once told me I am a, uh, I'm, a I'm an extroverted introvert. Yes. She said that. She I said, can relate. Oh, you're yes. an introverted extrovert. Yeah. So one-on-one, -on -one, if, if, if we're friendly, if, if there's no danger to, to me or my dyslexia, I'm cool. I'm open. I'm very, very childlike. You know, I'm a wow. But if, I, if you say something and I misinterpret it, I'm open, man. <clears throat> you can do that, like, in, in an instant. So sometimes I'm just like, uh, you know. But Larry, how do you go into rehearsal? you know, which is the ultimate, like, to me, you know, fear situation, you know, it's do or die as a, as an introvert and nail it. Well, I don't in the beginning. So there's a, uh, well, I'll give you an example. I did uh, uh, a very important play called uh, The uh, Servant and His Master, written by uh, Kundera, a very famous French playwright. But an actor got the rights to it to do it in America and the premiere opening American play was done in Los Angeles and I was cast as the co-lead with another actor. Very important play, very big part. I didn't understand my dyslexia at the time about how much I could learn in a certain given time, rehearsals. And so I said yes, which was, I didn't know very dangerous for me to do because I didn't understand my dyslexia. It's a huge part and I couldn't memorize it during rehearsal and I just stuck with it because I didn't know what else to do and I didn't know it was dyslexia I didn't I just couldn't memorize my lines I would go out onto the jetties on the beach here and shout my lines out into the ocean you know people thought I was nuts just trying to get it loud enough for my inner memory to hear it I mean I was doing all kinds of weird stuff to memorize and the lead the other lead my co-star in that hated me we would get into fist fights no i mean we wouldn't get into the fist fights but people would hold us back from getting into fist fights i mean challenge all hey come on all right you hit this and then when simon the the director pulled me aside out of rehearsal you know Millie said, larry i want to talk to you and he would pull me aside but he shouted at me so everybody heard it anyway just you got to learn your lines this is very important and I can go on and on for the uh, two months that I was in rehearsal. How does it? That was when I was young. Yeah. What I want to know, how does a, a shy guy who has dyslexia decide to do the ultimate challenge, which is to do TV shows, films? Wouldn't it have been easier for you to not do that and not make yourself vulnerable? What inspired you, motivated you, despite your challenges? Fear, basically it's fear, and I'll tell you what that is. I was a stand-up comedian, and that's what I wanted to do, and I was doing what the I wanted to do. The ultimate fear for most people, but that's the ultimate fear. Well, no, that, that wasn't the fear. I, mean, I had a little stage fright in the, in the beginning, but it's opening mic night. So, so the, the fact that they sat there for five minutes and made no judgment just washed away the fear because there was nothing to be afraid of. These you know, they weren't coming at me. They weren't booing. They weren't making a judgment. So there was, after a while, so, oh, these people are nice people. They, there's, It's not me. It's fine. I don't have to be funny for them. What I was your level of self-confidence at that point? 
as I saw the audience were accepting me, their silence and non-judgmental was to me acceptance. Mm. Because my parents were just judgmental like crazy. Mm. That's terrible burden to, to lay on a kid. So when they just accepted me, I relaxed. And as I relaxed, because I was funny to begin with, there was no reason why I, I shouldn't be funny on stage. I was funny to my friends outside, off stage. I got on and I froze. So they relaxed me and within six months, I'm opening for Woody Allen and I had his manager and I was equal to him. In the beginning, we were just starting, both mm -hmm. of us. Mm -hmm. But I would open for him and blah, blah, blah. What happened was I started to understand the power of comedy and satire and why I loved being a comedian and that was because I could attack sacred cows. Mm. And the reason I loved attacking sacred cows is that's what got the biggest laughs. If I attacked religion, politics, big laughs. If I talked about my mom uh, at the time, now it's different. I'm talking about then. Mom, family, eh, I got a family, I got about. Okay, now, you can get into the psychology of families. Now comedians are talking about their families like Sam Levinson used to and Myron Cohn used to, but now they get into it deep where it is satire and it is cutting and it is vicious, <laughs> you know, but okay, back then. So I got into satire and then I started opening for the big acts where I had really big audiences, not for me, but for the opener, like, uh, I mean, for the, the stars, like uh, Miles Davis. Miles Davis, they loved me. They loved me attacking religion and politics and I mean, everything you can't talk about it. Right audience, about. right message. Go ahead. Yeah. And then I started opening for the Kingston Trio. Mm. And they started coming at me with beer bottles upside down. Get the <laughs> fuck off the stage and give me the Kingston Trio. <laughs> not my audience. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I got it. But too, too vanilla for you, maybe the audience. <laughs> uh, yeah. Or, or too chocolate for them, you know, or too raspberry or pepper. Yeah, I yeah. don't know. But the thing was that it started to get to me The the, I mean, the rioting, there was rioting in the audience because I was opening for rock and roll shows now, Love and Spoonful. And they were the kids. This is college kids, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That's yep. what I was talking about. Um, they would pull the wooden armrests off of their arena seats and throw them at me. Wow. So, you know, the first two or three rows would be thrown. Doom, doom, doom. And the, the, the loving spoonful in the audience, in the, in the wings saying, keep going, keep going. It, you know, they're, <laughs> booing, they're booing, man. Get off the stage, bring on the loving spoon. No, no, they wanted a riot. They wanted the publicity. So they would say, no, no, stay up there. And cops would come in and pull me off the stage. And right before the cops pulled me off the stage, I saw in the back, because they had the arena lights on all the time, you know, for rock and roll shows, or lights on all the time. I could see in the guys in the back, when these guys in the front, no girls would throw anything. Uh, the, the guys in there would, ran out of armrests. And, if <laughs> and, the fifth row back, and the fifth row back was too far to throw. So the guys in the back, were pulling off their armrests and passing them down. That's how much they hated me. What did that do to your psyche? Oh, I loved it. Okay. I, I, I loved it. I loved it because, wow. And here's the other thing. 
when I went like this, I said, okay, I'll stop, I'll stop. I don't understand why you kids, this is sex, drugs, rock and roll, and your college kids, and it's a rock and roll show. Why are you booing me? Is this a sex drug? They shut up and listen to me. And as soon as they shut up and listen to me, I said, okay. Now I'm gonna go back into the app. Okay, so here we go, blah, blah, blah. Boom, boom, and they started throwing me. And that's when the cops came and pulled me off. What did it do to my psyche? I loved it, but I hated it. Not because of the rejection, because I knew I was funny, man, by then. I mean, you know, I've been doing it for a year at least in arenas that I got angry that I wasn't getting my hit. I wasn't getting the endorphins of laughter. They were booing me. I was being cheated out of what I came here to do. Mm, yeah. Make you laugh and I get off on that. Gotcha. So I, you know, finally I called my manager. What did I do? I said, hey man, I can't do this anymore. Why not? It's not fun anymore. Again, it's not money. I was getting a lot of money to do that. I said, I can't do this anymore, man. It's just not, not fun. I, I was having fun and these people hate me. Now this is before Richie Pryor. Uh, I was watching Richie Pryor. I was watching Lenny Bruce. I was watching George Carlin, but they weren't really famous and they were getting the same crap I was getting, but they were in it for the laughs and the fun and the money. And I was in it just for the laughs and the fun. Mm. So that's like, you got to think about that. So that's what kept them going. <laughs> I want this paycheck. I'm staying here. Mm. Whatever, yep. you know, yep. whatever, whatever it was. So I called him and he said, my agent said, all right, well, and it was Woody, it was Woody's manager. So, I mean, he knows comedy. He said, well, look, why don't you go join Second City? They're doing what Lenny is doing and Pryor is doing and Carl is doing, but they own the theater. So join them. So I auditioned and that got me into acting. And then I was trapped into the money game because I was making a lot of money and I forgot about show business. Uh, improv was fine because it was still in my head, my, my stuff. You know, improvising, but it, but when you're trapped with money, you start to get an apartment, and you get a car, and then you get better cars because now it's competition about cars. I mean, they would people. I would be on on TV shows where the stars would gather at the end of a shot, each shot. You know, they would talk to each other. So I joined. You know, poop, and I just get get in there. And what are they talking about? Oh, I got this new GPS thing. You know, it's blah blah. No, it's part of the dashboard. You know, we got a new car, and they have got it in the dashboard. The, the old keeping uh, up with the Joneses, have? right? You got to keep up with the Joneses. Well, I could. So they would turn it. to me yeah, yeah. and they would say, uh, "You know, what do you got, Larry?" And I'd say, "Well, um, I just bought a. Uh, oh, you bought one." And that was the last time uh, they would talk to me. You know, everybody else had GPS in the dashboard already. And I had bought just a little thing. I mean, come on, man. So, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just icky. I don't like those people. <laughs> so Larry, let's get into uh, the fourth season of Seinfeld where there's this two part episode called The Pilot where Jerry and George get the green light to produce Jerry, the pilot for the series based on their, you know, as everybody knows, the nothing kind of a life. And you end up playing the iconic character, Tom Pepper, who's the actor hired to play Kramer in this pilot of Jerry, right? And so tell us a little bit about that experience, which went on to become one of the best viewed episodes in television history. Um, I, I didn't know that. I don't, I don't know that. Is that true? Well, it certainly had 
uh, I think at the time about 30 something million viewers. Oh, oh, at the oh, time. oh that. right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I guess so. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, people know me as Tom Pepper and stuff. But again, man, it, he wasn't iconic when I was doing it. I don't even know what that, you know, I, I didn't know that word existed around me or, or what I play. But I do know that when I do these short things, because I'm dyslexic, I take very short roles, but they stand out, you know? So I know as a kid, people were taking pictures of me. So I, it must be me, something about me. I have no idea. I know my personality doesn't attract people, but, but I guess me in a character does. So there was no big deal. I, they weren't that, you know, they were, I just went in because I liked the role. The role was really good. And one of the things about getting the role that I really thought was really brilliant on, uh, on the production end was when they said, uh, well, first of all, I knew Michael Richards years before I did, before he did Seinfeld. He played Kramer famously, of course. Uh, yes. Yeah, because we look alike. We look like brothers. So we were always being cast for, for, we would always be auditioning for the same thing. So we would start seeing one another. So we would talk and, you know, hey, blah, 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 blah. And then finally we were cast as brothers in a, um, a restaurant sitcom. I forgot what it was. Well, we robbed the place. We played two uh, gangsters who, who robbed the place. And so we became friends over that. Although we have totally different ideas of what's funny. Because in the sitcom, there's a thing where we're escaping and we're driving in a truck. We're driving in a flatbed truck away. But it's just a, a studio shot, you know, in the cab, you know, with, with a green screen behind him. So he's driving and I'm, and we have this dialogue. And the dialogue is funny, humorous. It's Seinfeld. But he wanted to do it one way and I wanted to do it another way. He wants to do it over the top and I want to do it, I, I go under, he goes over. So it was a, a weird argument we were having while we were rehearsing, you know, privately we would talk and we would argue. And I would love to have a recording of that argument that we would argue about what's funny and what's not about two guys who are really funny, but on totally different ends. So when it got to shooting the scene, I mean, we got really mad at one another. No, that's not funny. Let me say this and then you say that. Why don't you do this? And, and it was, got, you know, come on, man. So when we got on the set to actually shoot it on the day, the director would say, you know, run it. And we were each trying to edge each other out. It was a silly thing. And he said, all right, look, let's just do it the way it's written and I'll direct you and you're doing it my way. And that's what we did. So it's <laughs> just both of us just thrown out. But okay, so when I got there to do Michael, to, to imitate Michael, I really wanted to do him a service, Michael, not, not Kramer. I, I wanted to say, you know, hey, he's my friend. I gotta, but what the production did was so pr brilliant was they said, they said, well, we want you to do the uh, audition for, for the role of Kramer. They sent me uh, a video of the episode that the audition was about. In other words, the scene that I did when I came in and did the audition and did with the, the couch with the pillows, that, that, that thing, that was an episode of Seinfeld that Kramer was in, that they shot. Mm -hmm. And they used that in this new 
uh, iteration of Seinfeld. They sent it to me. So I could see what the character did that was written that I was going to do. Only I saw Kramer doing it. So all I did was I just watched that about a hundred times and I wasn't acting at all. I was aping exactly what Kramer was doing. It was just visual memory. That which was, was which was not an easy thing to do because Kramer's kind of a one of a kind. So even oh, yeah, to, yeah, to, yeah, to try quirky. to do what a one of a kind, quirky kind of guy. Well, and, no, and you that, got the mannerisms makes... down. You got them down. Well, but that's the that's what makes it easier. I don't know if I could do you that way because you, you, you're not that <laughs> I'm not quirky. quirky. I'm not quirky enough. Exactly. But you, but, but you don't see me off camera. You know, you might like, I'm never, I could never play this guy, Eli Marcus. <laughs> well, it, it doesn't really matter. You, you're, you're not quirky enough for me to do. I mean, right, right now, I could tell you when I, when I was a friend of, of, of Michael, if you asked me to just imitate Michael, I could imitate him. He's kind of that way, but quieter yeah uh, off stage yeah but 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 he's still quirky and and i some people you can pick up like that some politicians you know have a lot of well like look trump okay now all the late night comedians are doing trump they're a stink they stink they can't do them but every once in a while somebody can do trump but it's yep. rare because he's really hard because he his hands are mechanisms you know but hold it right there but it's his hands. I don't know what the this is all about. I can cartoon him. So it, it depends on the person's quirkiness. And so I latched onto his quirkiness from the video and that's all I gave them. And I was hired because of that. But when I was auditioning, you know, you have 10 people auditioning. Nobody looked like Kramer. Nobody was coming in and out of the door. I hated that. They would say, come in and come in the door. Larry David would say that to me. I didn't know who he was, but I was auditioning. Okay, and I would go blah, 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 pillows, pillows, pillows. And then it was all, all right, thank you very much. You know, and I'm just about to leave. And there's one guy in the end, Larry David, who I didn't know who he was. Bald guy at the end with glasses. He would say, go in and out of the door like Kramer. And, and I auditioned five times for that. Nobody looked like him. Nobody came in and out of the door. Because he would sit out there, you know. And when I went out the door, you go out the door into the waiting room where all those rest of the people are auditioning, you know, for, and I would, you know, look around high and then I would go in like Kramer. But when I was sitting out there and people were auditioning, nobody came in and out of the door. So it was, yeah. I was the only one, yeah. but I had to audition five times. So I was going to PO'd and I was going to hit him. I really was. <laughs> I was going to hit him. Can I ask you a question, Larry? You go into an audition, right? Um, the average person going to an audition, I would think to them, it's almost like a do or die situation. It's, do you have the tension that the average actor no, has? I, I, I get nervous because I want to do my best. If you don't get the role, you know, it's not the end of the world. You tell me, I go in and I got and they say, thank you very much. We'll get in touch. After three days, if you know, you don't get the call, I just dump it and I go on. Okay. However, I always call and say, when is the show that I auditioned for? I don't know how I say it, but what I mean is, when is the show that I auditioned for going to be on? And then I watch it. And then I watch it and I see who got the part. And then I sit there and I go, no, they didn't hire <laughs> me and he got it? What the? I mean, you know, and then, and then for like maybe Not five possible. Minutes, 
<laughs> yeah, five minutes, I get like weird. I'm going to ask you an unfair question because we're getting to the end of the show, but I got to squeeze this in because you were in this incredible film, Escape from Alcatraz. I got to ask you about your experience with Clint Eastwood. Uh, we don't have a lot of time, but please give us some insight into that. How is it like working with him? Well, he's a he's a worker. I mean, he's uh, I, what I learned from him is uh, just do the work. Uh, and he works and, and I was working get it done. with, yeah, <laughs> get it done. Uh, he's very serious. He's got, and he's got a lot of, uh, cause he wanted to be a director. He's always wanted to be a director yeah. and the director that he learned from was Don Siegel, who was directing escape from Alcatraz. So I got to see how Clint Eastwood works with, with a director. I mean, he's such a big star. You work with him. You don't tell him what to do. You discuss Wait, it. Were you him. in awe at all when you're in a role with someone that big? No. Um, I, I No, I, I, I'm i in awe for a couple of seconds or maybe a day. But yeah, grow it, man. I mean, you... What tip can you give the average person uh, in terms of turning off that fear? Make friends real fast. That's what got me through Alcatraz. Uh, Clint Eastwood likes good, he likes workers. He, he likes sincere work. Uh, I, I don't know how to explain it. He, he, he likes truth and honesty in the, in the work. I don't know about off, off, off camera, but on the set, on the floor, as they call it, the floor is where the actors and the camera are going to work. Sacred ground, the get the job done, don't goof off. Exactly. And he's all business. Mm. But he's a very funny guy. Like, here's a piece of trivia. Clint Eastwood is a savant of Lear's limericks. He has in his head thousands of Lear, you know, there once was a girl from blah, blah, from Nantucket, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, no, yeah. He has Humpty, Dumpty, thousands yeah. of them in there. But the, to answer your question about, uh, you know, the fear of the, and the awe is Don Siegel is not like him at all. Don Siegel was like my grandfather, like a good, great grandfather. And he treated me like a grandson, Don Siegel, because I was so naive. I would keep on asking. It was the first big movie I'd ever done. So I was a naive kid. I, I, I was right out of improvisation and stand up. So he would, he, he would just, well, go over there and stand over there. And I, why? Well, I need somebody in the shop. And so he would just use me as just like an extra. A prop. Just, <laughs> yeah, a prop. Yeah, exactly. But he would do it with such graciousness and, and such friendliness, like, like my grandfather would say, hey, Larry, come here. He would always call me Larry. You know, hey, Larry, come here. Why? Just get in this shot here, get in the background there. Uh, why? What am I doing? I don't know. I just need somebody in the shot. Get in there. As a, just like a grandfather. So he was so friendly to me all the time and treated me just like his grandson. I would say, you know, why are you doing this? Why? You know, because I wanted to learn how to direct and, and the movie. That's why I was there. Not for Clint Eastwood specifically and not for him. Oh, I want to be see a movie made. How that comes together. What? So I would stand next to him all the time and, and I would go, Okay, so why are you doing this shot? And he go, I don't know, Larry. I'd probably get fired for this one, but you know, I don't know. Let's try it. Yeah, you know, he would just say things like that, or you know, go over it's there. What do you do? Well, classic stories you got. I'll tell you. You know, something you said to me the first time we talked may live in infamy. Something you said to me may right. be iconically quoted 
what you said to me is you said when the hard part is over, then the hard part starts. Tell the listening audience what you mean by that. I said it to Bobby Newworth, who was the uh, road manager of Bob Dylan for years and years. Uh, he's a great guy, Bob. Uh, and he's really so smart. I always like talking to him. And I was talking to him one day and we was talking and we, we came up, to I had just done a set at the Troubadour and he was there. So we, we walked to the show and I was talking to him and he was saying about how, oh, and they were booing me, the, the audience at the, and uh, he said, how do you get through that? And I said, well, you know, I spent years trying to get that good because I, I had been around for a while when I was at by the time I got to the Troubadour. But they didn't like it anyway. So, you know, some audiences. And I said, well, I, I had tried for years to be, get that good. And then they come in. So well, the hard part is over and you get up on stage and now comes the hard part. You know, you gotta, you gotta deal with that. And it's not just once, it's twice. So I was talking, I've had a lot of booze, man. So the hard part's over, now comes up because everything that you wanna work, no, everything that you want to do takes work. It's called process, but I call it the hard part. But basically, it's just process. You know, to be a comedian is one thing to make you laugh if we're hanging around having beers. It's another thing to get on the stage and have people, you know, pay 15 bucks minimum a piece to have to laugh at you. It's not the same. There's a lot going on. There's, you know, for me, it was six months. For some people, it's four years. By the way, your second album takes a year if you're a stand-up comedian. Why? Because your first album is 10 years worth of laughs that you've been gathering and formulating into one really solid, what, half hour or an hour? You know, you've got all, all that stuff. But now it comes out, and you have to come out with another album in one year, man. That's not like saving up all these laughs and coming out with one album. So the hard part's over. 10 years of getting your first album. And then the hard part now is getting your second album. And it's probably harder because there's more pressure. You had, you had no pressure in the beginning. You knew you were bad. You, were, you knew you were learning. Yeah. Now you're a pro and you got an album out. Yeah. Now come out with an album. All that pressure and expectation and people, you know, their mortgages are riding on your next album. You're, you know, and that, that's the thing I don't like about Hollywood. Everybody's got a mortgage to pay. That's how they trap you. <laughs> so Larry, um, we're ending the show here in about a minute. Can you tell the audience what they have to look forward to, what your upcoming projects are, how they can learn more about you, find you? Okay. So I'm trying to change my whole thing from TV and, and all the things that you know me for. I want to do my own thing now. That's how I started and that's where I'm going to end. So I started out as a stand-up comedian and I'm going to end with telling my own stories. And a lot of the stories are about my life in show business and also my life with my parents and my life with my girlfriends and my life with my friends. So that's what I'm going to do uh, and make my own movies. So go to therealarryhankin.com, therealarryhankin.com, that's one word, Two L's, R-E-A-L-L-A-R-R-Y, but one word, reallarryhinkin.com. And on there, I'm going to, uh, I just finished a movie. It's called How to Become an Outlaw. And it's a study I did over eight years of a character that I invented 
and finally it came to fruition and I put it all together into a 58 minute film. It's called How to Become an Outlaw. It's a study of a character. It's a character study and it's really funny. So that that's a, a film. And then after that, I'm going to do um, a one hour HBO special podcast. It has nothing to do with HBO. I'm just telling you that's the kind of thing it's going to be. It's going to be me, but it's going to be for the internet. Uh, special, an hour special. And that's the next thing. So look for that. So those two things, but go to my website, therealarryhankin.com. And there's also my paintings on there. My other uh, film shorts are on there. Uh, that'll be on there, the how to uh, become a, an outlaw. Larry, I'll tell you something. They don't make them like you anymore. Thank you so much for being a guest <laughs> on, on the I'm motivation. They broke the mold. You're one of a kind. I love you. You're great. Right, Thanks thank for being you, on the uh, show. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in. We love our listeners, and we believe you have greatness within you. If you like The Motivation Show, we appreciate you subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Check out EliMarcusSuccess.com to hear more inspiring shows and to read our motivational blog. That's EliMarcusSuccess.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>